Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. And well, what do you need to know right now about Opportunity Zones and inflation? That's one of many topics that we're going to be covering on today's episode. Joining me on the show today is my good friend in the OZ world, Chris Loeffler. He is the CEO and co-founder of Caliber, the wealth development company. And he joins us today from his office in Scottsdale, Arizona. Chris, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing great. It's uh, nice and warm. It's summertime in Scottsdale, so it's 187 degrees outside, and all of us are cooking. But uh, no, it's it's been um, it's been a, a good summer for Caliber so far, notwithstanding all of the inflation and everything else that everyone's concerned about. But our business is actually doing really well, which is exciting uh, at this time. Oh, that's great to hear. I was going to make a joke about uh, whether you were keeping warm down there in the <laughs> Valley of the Sun, but I guess you already beat me to it. Um, yeah, inflating yeah. costs, inflating prices, inflating temperatures, right? It's all all of the above. And, and uh, the longer you live in Arizona, the more you realize that heat is just a, a social construct. <laughs> that's a good way of looking at it. I like yeah, that. No, it's... Uh, We've got plenty of hot weather here in Fort Worth, Texas as well. Not quite 187. I think we're at about a buck five out there right now. Last I checked, maybe a buck six. Uh, well, let's dive in today, Chris. Uh, as I've been covering for the last several weeks on this show and also on our alternative investment podcast, my other show that I co-host with Andy Hagens, uh, we've been talking about the economy, the macroeconomic turbulence that has been unfolding over the past uh, few months here, markets are way down. I, the the S&P 500 had its worst six-month start to the year since the 1970s, if I recall correctly. Inflation just hit 9.1%. We're recording this in the middle of July, so we just got that CPI print a uh, day or two ago. <clears throat> Inf- uh, interest rates are on the rise. Uh, we might be heading into a recession. Uh, a lot to think about there. How does Caliber adjust its strategy uh, in reaction to all of these events and economic uncertainty or turbulence? And, and how should investors think about it? Yeah, I, I think about the investors first. And, you know, I think if you look at past recessions, let's just assume we're in a recession. I think that's a fair assumption at this point in time. Um, if we're not in a recession, I think you would be a, a, a very, you know, big surprise to the majority of people. I think we all agree that this is where we're at. Um, And if you look at past recessions, especially in the 2008 financial crisis, you saw some of the greatest companies and some of the greatest deals done in those years. Um, And so as an investor, you should be waking up one day thinking about how do I kind of protect the downside and, and, and make sure that I do the best I can to make my way through this. But also you should wake up the next day and say, Where's the opportunity that's going to come from this? Um, and in my position to take advantage of it. Um, and obviously that's self-serving as a company that raises capital and manages capital. But you, I think it's important to state that because caliber strategy really hasn't changed. Um, we've always followed a very similar playbook, which is 
when we once we've deployed capital, we do everything to, we can to protect that capital, and we we make sure that you know we're as creative as possible to manage our way through every deal, including you know of course in the last year or so we've faced a lot of increasing costs of construction and all those things, and we've had to do a lot of things to hedge against that. Um, having said that, we are one of the most entrepreneurial companies in our space, constantly looking at okay, everything has fundamentally changed in the last three or four months. That's new. That creates a lot of disruption and a lot of new opportunity. And how do we position ourselves to go after it on behalf of our clients? And so um, that's what's on our mind. Our strategy has always been to be agile and to be focused on jumping after those opportunities and not questioning the change, just sort of going with the flow. Um, there's a great book called The Clippership Strategy, which is sort of an old book talking about the economy and, you know, it's sort of looks at the Keynesian view and looks at, you know, the, I guess the Austrian economics view of the economy. And the concept is you want to be a clipper ship, meaning you want to be this little agile ship that can move and shift each time the uh, either the, the economic situation changes or the government changes. And right now we've had both. We've had a dramatic change in government, a dramatic change in the economy. We've had a black swan event. And all three of those things are different headwinds pushing in different directions. So as much as possible, you don't want to be looking at things from a rigid perspective to say, hey, look, we've been doing affordable housing for 30 years. That's all we're ever going to do. You want to say, okay, well, maybe that's not going to be the best thing to do. Maybe we should be doing medical right now. Maybe we should be looking at um, infrastructure for manufacturing because that's, that's a big push right now. Um, so that's what we're doing internally is we have those conversations all the time. Um, and I can share more with you, Jimmy, on what we think, where we think the opportunities are, why we're going in the direction we're going. But I will say, I will tell you that we have, after the last three or four months, we have definitely modified our thinking around where the opportunities are going to be going forward. Uh, well, that's great. Cause I, I'd actually like to hear a lot more about that. Uh, I, from crisis, oftentimes comes great opportunities or I guess another way to put it is you got to make some lemonade from these lemons. Yeah. Uh, well, how, what, what are you guys doing differently? Where do you see the opportunities? One thing about your qualified opportunity fund one, which just closed. And we'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later in today's episode is that you're mostly property type agnostic. If I'm, yeah. if I'm recalling correctly, you're, you're geographically focused in the greater Southwest but you're not really locking yourself into just multifamily or just office or just industrial. So you've got a little bit of flexibility there with regards to your investment thesis or investment mandate, if you will. Where, where do you see the opportunities ahead though, Chris? Yeah, so fund one um, just closed, big deal for us. We raised about 200 million in that fund and uh, that'll end up owning about $500 million worth of property. So congratulations to all the fund one investors. Last valuation had it up 35%. And um, you know, notwithstanding the change in pricing and financial assets in the last couple of months, we don't see those asset values coming down. We actually see them continuing to progress. So that's that's a great uh, great thing for us. And what it did, interestingly enough, because we were very loud and we were very early in the opportunities on space, is that Fund One basically seeded a very large pipeline of additional follow-on investments for Fund Two. So one thing that's not changing in some degrees, our second fund is basically going to pick up where the first fund left off and the pipeline that we've built of development projects and partnerships. 
and continuing to fund into those. Um, what is shifting out in, in, in the second fund strategy is uh, a little bit wider uh, geographic diversification. Most of our assets in the first fund were in Arizona. We're adding in Texas. We're looking at stuff in Salt Lake City right now um, and other places. And um, I think there will be some interesting opportunities in existing assets versus new development. And the reason why is because, you know, when the market is here and you can build at this cost and there's a spread, that's what you want to do. But when the market drops and there's a, a good likelihood that real estate assets will drop in value at some point in time in the near future, the construction prices are a lot more durable. <laughs> the cost of labor, the cost of materials, they'll come down some, but they won't come down nearly at the same level as asset values will. And, and, and that's, just, that's just the way the market works. So what will happen is that existing assets tend to drop pretty far, especially if there's issues in the debt markets. And so I think, as I'll just give you a simple example. Um, in the last five years, the fad across the country has been buying multifamily assets with bridge financing. Okay, so a bridge loan is a three-year loan with one or two one-year extensions. And if you were buying multifamily in the last three to five years with three-year loans with one or two extensions, and you were using bridge debt at two and a half percent interest, thinking you were going to refinance with Fannie or Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac at 3% interest, you're now maybe able to refinance that loan at 6% interest and probably for not the same loan proceeds. So your loan costs have doubled and the amount of proceeds you, you are going to get are less. And so your pro forma just doesn't work anymore. Um, so anyone who's been buying income producing multifamily and thinking they were going to either hold it or turn it around is probably going to be in the market soon trying to dump it. Hmm. Um, and if it's not them, it's going to be the lenders who took it over that are then selling it. And that's what causes these disruption in pricing. And that's where Caliber wants to enter and buy these things because that's where the spread is. Even though the market might've come down in value, there's still a new spread, uh, at the bottom. And a lot yeah, of these, imagine that, that probably cause a huge glut of supply on the market. That's going to drive down prices. It, it, it does. It, it does. It's sort of like a, it, it's, it death spiral is an overused term, but that's what happens is you, more stuff comes on the market, which lowers valuations even further, which causes the issues to, to compound. Having said that, a lot of this stuff, because it's commercial assets and it's not the same thing as in the 2008 financial crisis when it was all these single family homes, it'll actually trade institutionally behind closed doors pretty mm -hmm. quickly. And the problem will probably clear out faster than what most investors will, will realize. Um, but that creates opportunity to, for caliber to think about buying existing assets. And that exists in, in all the hot categories like multifamily, self-storage, industrial, any of those asset classes that were the really favorable classes are gonna be the ones that we're gonna be you know, keeping an eye on. And as you know, as long as you do substantial improvement to those properties, they can qualify in an opportunity zone structure. So if there's a class B multifamily asset that falls and we can do a really nice reno, that can be a qualified deal. So we're, we're going to be certainly continuing to do ground up developments in opportunity zones because that is the nature of the program, but having a, a tighter focus on existing assets as well. Sure. No, that makes perfect sense. You got, I, I like that the hand gestures you are making. If you're, if you're listening to this podcast on, on Apple podcasts or Spotify, you're missing the hand gestures that we're making right now. You should be watching us on YouTube, but you know, Chris has his hands far apart. There's a, there's a spread between 
new construction being much lower than buying a, buying up existing assets, but that spread's starting to yeah. come down. The other thing it does, Chris, I don't know if you touched on this, I may have missed it, but I'm also thinking the substantial improvement requirement isn't nearly as burdensome if asset prices come down. You have a lot less capital that you have to put into improving the building. It makes it more likely, because for a long time, right? I mean, it was very difficult yeah. to attain substantial improvement in most markets, particularly in multifamily. That's why you see so many OZ projects are, I, I don't know what the number is, but I got to imagine it's, it's north of 90% ground up construction versus um, buying up existing assets and rehabilitating them. Am, am I off there? Or am I, am I right? Well, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and the way to think about that is almost like what's the market for assets. So Calip, one thing that won't change about Caliper's strategy for fund one to fund two is that we're still focusing on this place-based strategy of pick census tracts and opportunity zones that we like location-wise and build what is necessary to build in those census tracts. So understand the market and invest in or build assets that make sense considering what's going on within that market. That's why we're a mixed asset fund versus a lot of our competitors are saying, well, we're we're only doing industrial or we're only doing multifamily or something like that. So we we're doing the same thing, but now the pool of investments we could buy has expanded as those asset values start to adjust it, it, to your point, it gives us more optionality to buy existing assets. Um, the other thing that will be really interesting to look for, and we already are doing that this currently, but we're going to be looking for more of it is conversions um, through an adaptive reuse strategy. So taking, um, office buildings that are now functionally obsolete due to the pandemic and converting them to housing apartments. Same thing with um, hotels being converted to housing. Uh, right now, we're, we're currently converting a hotel to housing and we have a partner that's converting an office building to housing. So we're seeing that happen right now as we speak. And those are great deals. Um, in both cases, we're into those projects for less than it would cost for us to build ground up. Hmm, and then you're able to meet substantial improvement on those yeah, as well? Yeah, because for you're OZ doing, deals? in the conversion, you're doing enough work on that building um, to uh, to hit the substantial improvement clause. Yeah, well, that's that's probably a, a big need too. I would imagine there's a housing shortage in most markets all over the country and probably a oversupply of office given uh, the, you know, just what's unfolded over the last uh, 24 plus months coming out of the yeah. Especially suburban office. And when you talk about community impact, take a suburban office that hasn't paid its property taxes for four years because it's vacant and bankrupt and convert it to housing at an affordable level that all of a sudden fits that affordable housing or you know, at least workforce housing or sort of low end of the market rate. So it's still approachable. I guess they call it attainable housing. Mm -hmm. um, and all of those things are all positive. It starts paying property taxes again. Yep. And you've now provided a service to the community that's needed. So um, adaptive reuse is going to be a much stronger strategy now going forward and um, existing assets are interesting. We, we don't, we don't know if there's going to be a big pile of them, but we think they're coming. Yeah, there may very well be time will tell, but, uh, but there, there may very well be yeah. that, that pile of great deals coming on, on existing assets, like you like you pointed out. We'll, we'll, it's a, we'll find it's a out. good question for the for your um, for your audience to think about: is is the opportunity zone fund manager that I'm investing with, or that I'm planning to invest with, are they do they have a track record of investing in 
stressed assets, adaptive reuse, uh, renovations, or are they only a merchant builder or something? You know, if they're only, if the only thing they've ever done is build the same building over and over again, um, you're, they're going to struggle because building right now is going to make less and less sense um, unless something changes. Well, some definitely some good topics to think about there, Chris. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get back to inflation. We wanted that to be one of the main focuses of today's episode. Uh, everything is going up in price, right? Uh, a lot of rising costs in construction, I'm sure, maybe in in acquisition values. Notwithstanding our conversation about, you know, some assets probably being repriced here at some point uh, in the future. But what impact has inflation had? on caliber have you guys experienced any delays or modifications yeah. or have you found that some projects suddenly need more funding now what 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 take do you have on inflation and and its impact on your operations at caliber well it's interesting because in the last report it was at 9.1 percent year over year but there was also buried in that um one thing that i think is kind of strange um and a little scary is that um average wages were down 3%, uh, hmm. which is odd. Normally, you know, in the in the past when we had significant inflation back in the 70s or so, wages were inflating at a similar rate. So just was what was what it was. But that that really calls into question the the need for things like affordable or attainable housing that we already had a big need for in most opportunity zone communities before the pandemic and then this that's going to just put even more pressure. If hourly wages are down 3% and costs are up 9%, you know, that's a big- And, and housing's up and, and rental rates are up yeah. too, but maybe that's not sustainable with given what you're pointing out. Well, yeah. It's yeah. what point in time does that break? And you think about the average household income in the US is around $87,000 and the average costs are up around 8,000 a year. 8000 a year for a household making $87,000 is roughly equivalent to their entire food budget for the year. So like, just take a moment and think about that. Like, just because rents are up right now doesn't necessarily mean they can continue to, to, to stay with inflation. So as you're in your underwriting, you have to think through that. You have to say, okay, if building materials costs are, are going up and labor costs are going up, they can't go up forever. So when do I want to start my project at a point in time where, th where that, that bubble is going to release? And uh, Caliber has done our forecast, and we think that's going to happen in May of next year. Hmm. There's enough things between supply chain issues and just the, the, the unlikely possibility that those costs can continue to rise, that we see an actual real drop-off in building supplies. You know, lumber's already coming down, but other, other components of building and then labor softening. And so labor laborers were willing to basically work for less money at a lower cost. So everything we're buying now, we're, we're thinking about, let's make sure we don't start these projects until June or July of next year in construction. And let's not fix our bids on anything until we're a little bit down the road. So we're, that's how we're thinking about it going forward. And you know, maybe everybody else thinks the same thing and maybe- you're, you're, But you're in wait and see mode a little bit. You're not rushing out to the market Looking we're, to... we're, we're aggressively buying projects because there's a lot of fear. Mm -hmm. And when there's fear, that's, that's when good prices come. Mm -hmm. But we're not aggressively trying to start construction and placing gotcha. uh, the, the GMP contract and that kind of stuff. Because 
we, we see a lot of opportunity for costs to come down in some of those components. Now, the other thing that you mentioned is, are you having to put more equity into projects? And the answer is going to be 100% yes, because debt costs are going up to a point where if I'm going to pay 6% for money from a bank or 10% for money from a private lender, I'd rather just pay my equity investor 8%, 9%. It makes equity look a lot cheaper, doesn't it? Right. Fund it yeah. all with equity. You know, uh, Why take on the risk of debt if debt's going to be expensive? Um, and so- so you're planning on using substantially less leverage on your deals going forward for a while here? We had, uh, in our first fund, we only, we limited the leverage to a maximum of 50% LTV and we've never actually broken past 40%. Okay. Um, and we did that for a risk management tool because investors who had seven plus figure exits from businesses were investing in our fund and they needed to protect that capital. And so we figured, well, while we build these things, we'll run it with very little debt. And then once they're cash flowing, we'll bring up the debt. At this point in time, once they're cash flowing, we might not bring up the debt nearly as much because other than funding enough in the distribution to help them pay their taxes, if the debt's expensive, there's no point. Um, fund two, yeah, we're definitely thinking much more equity across the board. And um, investors, I think if you're an equity investor, you're going to benefit from that because you're going to have bigger distributions um, and, um, and and better safety in this environment. Yeah, good good points there. Uh, so you mentioned the cost of debt has has gone up. Uh, what, looking at construction costs and you know the need to have more equity in uh, what's what's causing some some of the costs in construction to go up? Is it? I mean, obviously it's it's materials and it's labor, but is one yeah. having a bigger impact than the other is, is what I'm trying to get at. Um, I think they were both horrible. Um, I think materials are starting to come down, which is typical. They'll come down first. They'll never come down to the level they were pre all of this because there's never been a time in history when they go up and they come back down, <laughs> yep. but they'll certainly come down to a level that's lower than today. Um, labor always takes a while to reset. If you're a, you know, finished carpenter and you're used to making 60, 70 bucks an hour. And now the best job out there is going to pay you 32. That's a tough pill to swallow. Um, so it takes a while for that to come, but you know, it comes. Um, and so we think, um, that's why we're, that's why we're planning for the summer of next year to move forward with a lot of our projects in terms of construction. Um, but having said all that, um, I think that, like I said, the buying opportunity is now that's you want to invest at the point of maximum fear in the market, because that is where, you know, as an example, a developer who might've been working on a project for the last three years realizes it's going to really be really hard to get it funded. And is looking at the fact that they've got a million of their own money invested in this project that they're going to lose. It's going to turn into vapor if they don't get it funded or taken over by somebody else, that's when they'll hand us the project for very little and we can finish it off, you know? Um, so there's, there's real opportunity in the market right now. And that's why if you're an opportunity zone investor and you just sold something, you sold out of the stock market or you sold your crypto or you sold your business or whatever. Um, and you're saying, should I put money in a fund now or should I just wait and see what happens with the economy? If you wait and see what happens with the economy, you're going to miss a lot of the opportunity. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And uh, it's, a, it's part of a story that I've been telling over the last several months is, hey, Stock market, especially for stock investors, typical. I, I like to use the the example 
typical 60, 40 stock bond investor, probably you're overweighted in stocks. You're, yep. you're, uh, you're, you're, you have very highly appreciated low basis gains that are unrealized. Maybe now is a good, and again, this is not investment advice, but maybe now yeah. <laughs> this is just for general information purposes only. Yeah. I like to make that caveat. I'm not giving anybody investment advice, but I think there's an opportunity out there for those types of investors to you know, take a little bit off the table. Certainly there was a better opportunity six months ago before the market tanked, but yeah. you know, I don't, nobody has a crystal ball. But well, take a little bit off the table and divest it into some real estate and why not do it through an opportunity zone fund? That's, that's kind of the drum I've been beating on over the past several months here, Chris. Well, and I, I think that's right. And, I, and I, say, I would say out of all the investor conversations I have, the one thing that consistently gets people's eyebrows to raise is this concept of sort of gain shaving out of your stock portfolio. So, mm -hmm. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're an average investor, like the ones I talk to, you may not even know that you have capital gains coming to you because your advisor did do some selling in the last couple of months. Mm -hmm. um, so you might have quarter million dollars of capital gains that they have harvested in order to get you out of stocks and to de-risk you, which is great. And then they don't even tell you about it. But huh? then they don't tell you about it until you have the tax bill. Yeah. And, um, and if you don't get it invested within 180 days of those sales, you're going to lose. So, you know, any, you should be talking to your financial advisor, making sure that you understand, have you harvested any capital gains? If there's anything out there, take that, put the gain component into an opportunity zone fund that further diversifies you, gets you out of, you know, a correlated investment and gets you into a real estate investment, but also gets you the tax savings. So again, I'm not giving any financial advice either, but I have that conversation with a lot, a lot of investors and a lot of very sophisticated investors. Um, and one thing they, that their advisor typically doesn't know is that you don't have to net the gains and the losses. So you could have, 500,000 in capital gains from selling activities, 400,000 in losses um, from selling activities. You can take 500,000, invest that into an opportunity zone fund, take the 400,000 in gains and roll it forward mm. um, and use it in the future in your portfolio. So it's a very interesting moment to have a, have a sit down with your CPA, your financial advisor and have a meaningful discussion of what's happened in your portfolio and what could happen as well. That's a really good strategy. A good, good idea there. Not advice, obviously, nope. <laughs> but, but good, good things to think about. Consult so, the professionals. <laughs> yeah, please do. Please do consult your professionals before making any investment decisions. Of course, we like to caveat that. Uh, that's our, that's our disclosure. Oh, uh, so we talked about some of the opportunities that the current uh, climate or conditions, if you will, are presenting to you. Certainly some challenges as well with respect to costs of everything going up and just economic uncertainty in general has its challenges. Are there any other challenges that, that you're facing lately, Chris, or that you anticipate you may face as a opportunity yeah, I, zone fund manager? I think investors um, should be concerned about the cost basis that they're into a project for or that they could be into a project for. Um, if we have an extended recession and other types of issues, if you, in an opportunity zone fund, if you invest in something that's maybe 30 or 40% above what it's worth at the time, and you spend the next 10 years recouping a lot of that loss, you're going to find that you got locked into a 10-year investment um, and you were in for a long time, but because you didn't have much gain in the value of your investment from 
from the beginning till the end because you got in at the wrong basis in the first place, um, you're not going to have very much tax benefit either. And so I think it's just something for people to be aware of that since asset values are shifting quickly, you're going to want to make sure that you're investing at the right cost at the right level. So you're not overpaying for land. You're not building at the worst possible time. All of those things are, are things that, that matter. Um, and then beyond that, for, uh, for Caliber and specifically for our own funds and risks that we're concerned about, um, I'm, I'm not overly concerned about our first fund or our second fund because we're using so little debt that we can ride out any particular bad weather that we're going to experience. What I am always concerned about is that investors stop investing and start and sort of freeze because we're, we're opening fund two as of July, 2022, trying to raise about 250 million in this fund. And what happens with investors when there's a lot of fear in the market is they tend to just do nothing. They don't buy, they don't sell, they just do nothing. And um, that's why we want to get the word out to say, this is the best possible time for you to empower me as your fund manager to go cut deals and bring in some great quality projects because when you're fearful, so is everybody else. That's when the best opportunities arise, uh, quite possibly. Well, let's let's talk about your funds now and, and your Opportunity Zone platform at Caliber. I think it was just June 30th, a couple of weeks ago. We're recording this uh, in mid-July. Yep. That you clo- you guys closed fund one after raising about $200 million in equity. And as you mentioned a few minutes ago, probably roughly $500 million in, in total project size. Uh, can you tell, what, what, what else can you tell us about that fund, your capital deployment strategy? You know, what buildings have you acquired to date? I, I saw some news, um, forgive me, I don't have it pulled up, but I saw some news come across a couple of days ago that you guys, uh, your first buildings um, underway now. What, t- t- tell us as much as you can about, about fund one. Yeah. So fund one was a great one. Um, really fun projects in the fun eclectic group. Um, the, you know, the highlights are, um, we built, uh, the number one double tree out of 600 in the country, or actually I think in the world, uh, in terms of quality scores, uh, double tree Hilton hotel in Tucson attached to the convention center, uh, in downtown Tucson. And, uh, it's a beautiful property, um, very successful. It's beating, uh, its current budget. And, um, it didn't get completed until after the whole COVID mess had mostly surpassed us. So we didn't sit there and take operating losses while we were going through the pandemic. It just opened after that. So it's been doing very well. Um, and, uh, you know, even though hotels have not been a favorable asset class in the last couple of years, I think they will become very favorable because we adjust the rents there every hour. So as prices are inflating, so are hotel rates. Um, and then other than that, we've got a, uh, you know, we, we went for deals that we felt were um, had a risk mitigant because we were a little bit concerned about this type of an environment we find ourselves in. So what, one of those major mitigants is having a 20 year lease with a, with a tenant. Um, so we've got two of those. One is a private school with a school that's been in business for close to 50 years. And another is a uh, behavioral health hospital with a successful hospital operator. That's a private equity funded um, uh, operator of, I think probably around eight facilities now. Um, So those two have both been great. The behavioral health is done and operating and producing cash flow. The uh, private school is in construction. 
And, uh, and then we have um, kind of a, like a turnaround or a transformation of a downtown. So the third largest city in Arizona, we bought most of their downtown, a bunch of historic buildings for average price for around $80 a square foot. We're renovating all those buildings. We've placed tenants into nearly all of them, either in leases or in LOIs at this stage. And we're starting to move people in. And all of this is getting done at the exact same time as Arizona State University opening a new innovation campus in downtown Mesa. So new college campus right on the downtown. We own the core of the buildings. And then we started to draft off of that investment to do additional investments. So we're building workforce housing one block south of that, 144 units of apartments. Um, we've got some other plans in the downtown Mesa area. I think the guys at Griffin Capital are building 350 units as well in downtown Mesa. Um, so that one's cool because it's a transformation of a downtown, very impactful, very much in the spirit of opportunity zone investing. Um, and then our largest project to date is an escrow to close. Fund one will likely fund the majority of the equity. Fund two may fund a piece of it, uh, but it is a roughly 100 acres of projects in um, the opportunity zone that is in the center of Scottsdale. It's on the Indian community land, right on the 101 freeway in the middle of Scottsdale, which is a great city in Arizona. And uh, this is going to be a mile of frontage on the freeway, mixed use development of entertainment, um, medical, uh, office, retail, et cetera. Uh, and uh, it's a development it's enough land for us to do at least half a billion dollars worth of development over the next couple of years. And so it's a great thing because we buy the land, we control that entire site, and then we can build in fund one and fund two uh, projects that are ready to build over the next couple of years as we get through the, the initial development process. No, that's great. Um, and I, if I recall correctly, that article I read earlier this week was about one of your projects in Mesa. I think it was your first building that opened there. I think I, it was a co-working space, I, I want to yeah, say. That, yeah, yeah. That sounds familiar? Uh, yeah, it's really cool. It's like okay. this mid-century modern kind of design. It's gorgeous. And it is opening um, actually, I think, next week. I think it's next week. Um, so, Great. Well, we'll have a link to that article uh, in our show notes for today's Thank episode you. if anybody wants to read more about that. So Fund One, Eclectic, as you mentioned, um, the strategy there really about picking the right zones, the right locations, uh, not so much being invested in one particular property type right. as, uh, as we talked about, Chris. How many different projects total will Fund One capitalize um, when all is said and done over the next few years? Is, is, is it about a couple of dozen or, or so? Yeah, yeah. From a project standpoint, it's, it's roughly 10 projects, but it'll be probably around 30 or 40 buildings. Um, okay. And then um, fund two will probably be a similar slice, slightly bigger. It makes sense to just raise them in these pools, deploy them, keep the deployment really high. That way the investor capital is not sitting around, um, you know, waiting for a project and then just keep opening and closing new funds. So we plan to continue this process for the foreseeable future. Uh, as Jimmy, as you know, we're adding in some additional strategies around co-investment, around merging smaller funds into ours to help um, those smaller fund managers um, maybe gain access to good quality projects or take the burden of reporting off their shoulders or anything else that, that may come down the road. So um, we're trying to be a long time 
durable player in the opportunity zone space because the the more the stickier you are in the space, the more that the opportunities sort of land in your lap, and the good ones are the best ones that walk in typically walk in the door. So we're um, we're dedicated to the space, and I think you know even in the current set of laws, opening funds all the way up until 2026 makes sense to me. And then, you know, if we get extensions, we get extensions. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about extensions and I want to talk more about your, uh, your merger, uh, concept or platform sure. in a minute here, but I, I want to talk a little bit more about fund two. Uh, did you say you guys were raising 250 million for yeah. that one? And, and, so the investment thesis, I guess the, the, the geographic footprint's a little bit broader going into Salt Lake City and in Texas, but what, what else is different about fund two compared to fund one? So what, let me answer what the, is the same and then I'll answer what's different. So what's the same is we're still going to be location, biased towards location, um, biased towards investing in very specific opportunities on census tracts that we know really well and that we know are growing. So there's a lot of growth path there. We're not developing in an area that is, you know, a desert for developments or something like that. Um, and what also is not changing is we're still using lower levels of debt. Um, we're still doing a mixed fund or a mixed asset class fund. What is changing is our, our geographic focus is expanding. Uh, and that's just an by nature, we're just getting a lot of opportunities from a, a broader source of areas. So we want to make sure we have good ge geographic diversification. And then two is um, we're going to be focused on more opportunities in existing assets and adaptive reuse strategies because we think now is a good time to do them. Um, we were in a really great development cycle for fund one and coming into fund two with interest rates going up, and with some distress in the market, we think there could be a, uh, an opportunity for adaptive reuse. Hmm. And maybe uh, buying it at favorable values for the, for the buyer as well. That's as the we, idea. I mean, as, the as entire, we talked about, yeah. I mean, again, a strategy that doesn't really change is buy at the best possible price. So our cost basis is as low as possible, which maximizes the, um, the value of the tax incentive. And then the other thing that we're doing with fund one and fund two, and then other funds that caliber has that we manage is we have a long-term strategy to roll these funds together and exit them as a public REIT. And so that gives investors when they hit their 10 year mark, the best possible sales price, if we do it right <laughs> and liquidity, and it moves the decision from our hands to their hands yeah. on when they want to sell their shares in the fund. And so we think that's the right move. Um, you know, we'll abandon that strategy if for some reason the public markets are in turmoil like they are today at the time, or if we can get a better price by selling off assets individually or as a portfolio. But we think we're going to get the best possible price for each project by selling them to the public via REIT. And if you do that right, then it's a tax-free exchange for the investors in the OZ fund. They can hold the REIT shares for 20 years if they want. And then when they sell those shares, they pay no tax on the value growth of the share. And well, you've got about 10 years or so to figure that out anyway. Yeah, lot, it's a while. <laughs> lot, lot, lot can change over the course of the next decade. We'll, we'll see what happens as time unfolds. Oh, you hinted a, a few minutes ago about a potential extension of Opportunity Zones when you mentioned that 2026 end date. Uh, the extension, of course, 
is one of the provisions in relatively new Opportunity Zone reform legislation that was introduced to the House and the Senate a few months ago. I've, I've talked about this reform legislation on this podcast on numerous occasions over the past several weeks. And probably we got, more than you want to, right? Talk yeah, about probably. We did a big webinar <laughs> on it a, a few months ago as well. But uh, Chris, how are you thinking about the reform legislation? How are your investors thinking about it? What happens if it gets passed? What happens if it doesn't get passed? What, what are your thoughts? Look, you know, my job is to find opportunities for investors and execute on them, right? And so if the reform legislation passes, um, the execution piece of that is going to be affected. And it could be affected by the fact that we have enhanced reporting. So what are we doing? We're already doing the enhanced reporting, or at least we're doing what we think it's going to be. So we've already got the infrastructure in place. We just sail right into that process and it doesn't slow us down or cause us to lose you know, focus when we should be focusing on doing other things. Um, and we do that with JTC and we've got our own little proprietary way that we're doing our reporting. Um, the other thing that this legislation could do is it could offer investors who invest today um, some of those benefits that they've lost theoretically uh, on you know, the step up in basis. So that's why we're doing the best we can to encourage investors that say, look, if you want to own real estate in your portfolio, if you want to avoid paying some taxes, make the decision now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the sooner you invest, the sooner you start accumulating a preferred return. And if this does pass, then you might pick up a, a nice tax benefit that comes from that. Um, so we're trying to get the word out, of course, for that. And then most importantly is we're trying to build channels of capital. The cheaper it is for me to raise capital, the more capital I deploy in the projects, the better those projects perform, basically. And if this fund of funds thing goes through and we can now have opportunity zone funds invest directly into Caliber's funds, as long as we build our funds out to accept that capital and manage it appropriately, it means we're going to raise more and faster and probably at a cheaper cost because we're not marketing for capital and we're not doing all the things you do when you market for capital, which just means that we're going to see better fund performance. Um, so I'm excited for that. I'm hope, I hope it goes through. Uh, we're advocating for it. I think it's good bipartisan legislature at a time when that's rare to find. And so we all expect it or, or hope that it will go through. Um, having said all that, if it doesn't, it's really not going to affect our existing investments and we're going to just keep keep moving forward in the current rules. Yeah, it'd just be a nice to have if it if it does get passed. And yeah, I, I've talked with with several other fund managers and some of my contacts in Washington, DC and 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 elsewhere across the nation. And it, it seems like the consensus is, and this is all just speculation, of course. I don't really have any inside knowledge, but from what I'm hearing is if it does get passed, it's it's most likely to get passed as part of some larger tax extenders bill, probably toward the end of this year, after the midterm elections, before this session of Congress gets out. Um, There's just a lot more opportunities for bipartisan cooperation on 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 various different tax programs and this opportunity zone uh, reform legislation could just get bundled into that. So that's what I'm hearing because I get that question a lot. So just, just wanted to Yeah, I I missed one thing that we're doing as well, um, Mm. which is Caliber has started making individual one-off investments into operating companies in the Opportunity Zone space, because we think this legislation, if it passes, especially because of the fund of funds concept, will offer us the ability to launch a venture-focused or a venture venture capital fund in the Opportunity Zone space. 
um, because the fund of funds concept is a very important concept to raise venture capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, as one of the early opportunities on investors, we get a lot of interesting opportunities to invest in operating businesses and oper- opportunity zones. But it's just been very difficult to raise a VC-focused OZ fund. Sure. So um, I think that that actually makes it easier. That's why we're making individual investments now and starting to build a track record of investing in operating companies um, so that, again, if the legislation passes, we could open a venture-focused opportunity zone fund. Yeah, it's interesting that they disallowed fund of funds in the first place, but hopefully that yeah. gets remedied when this new legislation gets passed. Fingers crossed. Uh, well, I, hey, let's talk about, we got a few minutes left here. We're going a little bit long, but that's all right. I'm enjoying the conversation, Chris, and hopefully our listeners and viewers are as well. Let's talk about uh, something you mentioned a few minutes ago, this newer mergers and acquisitions program that you have on your OZ platform. Essentially, I think it's going to allow you to merge with other smaller individual or captive QOFs and just essentially giving individuals, if they have their own QOFs, some strategic alternatives to getting placed or getting their capital allocated appropriately. Tell us more about that. What are you doing there exactly? What does that program look like? Yeah. So we developed uh, a program, uh, basically like a kind of a one sheet and a white paper on this so that anyone who wants it can just reach out to the company and we'll, we'll distribute it to you and show you what it is that we're doing. But what we did was we took, a, we took a look back at what was happening in 2018 when the law was passed and 2019 and even into 2020, what, what advice were investors being given on opportunity zones? And the advice was pretty, pretty much the same from almost all lawyers and CPAs, which is we'll form a fund for you, put your money in the fund, and then we'll figure out what to do with it later. Um, and it was, I think it was good advice at the time. It was it was maybe a little bit too conservative for my taste, but at the end of the day, it was helping investors gain the tax incentive, right? But, you know, once that's done, the lawyer and the CPA are out of your life. And then you own a $3 million LLC that's sitting around looking for projects. And maybe you found one deal you like, but you're not an expert at finding these types of deals and executing on them. And $3 million is not nearly enough money to do a decent development. So you got caught, you know, and a lot of people got caught in that space. Um, and I think if you're a CPA or a lawyer and you put a lot of your clients into this, you should talk to them about this particular program because this gives them a, an out. And and for it, it, it doesn't really matter to us whether they've deployed the capital out of the fund or not. I think in most cases we're seeing they made one investment that they were excited about and they still have excess cash sitting around trying to find a home. That's kind of the average. But even if they fully deployed it into one or two projects and we like the projects, it's still a candidate for the program. But essentially what we're doing is we're saying, you have a QOF, you have this thing, do you want to continue to report on it and manage it for the next 10 years? Or would you rather merge that QOF into our larger fund, get a diversified portfolio of projects, you like our projects, we like your projects, and then put it on our shoulders to finish the deployment of your capital into uh, new assets. And so by having two funds available, essentially, because even though fund one is closed for new investments, it's available for this merger program, um, we have essentially two options for those candidates, which is a mature fund with most of the assets identified and the money fully deployed or a new fund investing at the lowest possible cost basis. So you get to kind of pick and choose. 
But we just think it's a good moment in time to aggregate these funds together, put them under a single layer of management, cut the cost and the pain and suffering that the small fund managers are dealing with, um, and uh, and get all of us prepared for a much bigger exit down the road. Sure. Well, I think it's a great concept, really smart idea. Uh, Chris, we, we've run out of time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. If uh, any of our listeners or viewers out there are interested in learning more about that merger program or just your qualified opportunity fund platform in general, where can they go to learn more about you and Caliber? Pretty easy. It's caliberco.com, caliberco.com. If you just put an inquiry on the website, it will filter the right people. Um, come find us. Let us know you found us through Jimmy. It's always helpful. Um, and uh, and then if you're looking for me, I'm easy. I'm Chris at caliberco.com. So it's not hard to find me. Um, that actually is my email. It goes to me. Um, and so I will respond to you or, or make sure that somebody, the right person responds to you. So Again, it's caliberco.com and uh, it's been fantastic to see you again, Jimmy. I can't wait to see you in October. Hopefully you make it out for the Opportunity Zone Expo. We'll be a sponsor there. I think we might do, if we have time, we might do a, a property tour in Arizona like the day before the expo. So if anybody's going to come out for that, um, come come with us on a property tour. Come see some Opportunity Zone projects. Well, that'd be great. Um, I'll try to uh, drum up some more support for that there, Sounds good. Chris. And for our listeners and viewers out there, of course, as always, we will have show notes available for today's episode at the Opportunity DB website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there we'll have links to all of the resources that Chris and I discussed on today's show. And also, please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Chris, thanks again. It's been great. Thanks, Jimmy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 